1: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the RISE Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Mayu Thaba, and Austin Ye. What's going how's on, it going, buddy? Man? No, 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 don't do this <laughs> shit.
0: You've been doing this for uh, two and a half years now. So I asked <laughs> you, how's it going?
1: Good, man. But we were in Miami last weekend and it was a little bit of a bender and then came back and just trying to get by to the weekend, man. So- Yo,
0: have you had these hangover pills before? I've heard things about it.
1: I've there's no way there's no way if it, Listen, if it was you actually never tried legit it. it's probably like having like a gatorade you know like yeah it, o- it'll o- work it's for, for sure it's way. probably
0: just vitamins and electrolytes or something along those lines yeah, you right. have i'm gonna head to mexico city next week from wednesday to sunday just going for uh, fun no no uh just yeah i guess like see, i i wouldn't call it a bachelor i guess somewhat of a bachelor okay. but really more so of a v- vacation right um Good. So it's going to be, it's going to be pretty fun, but I'm, I'm not looking forward to the hangovers because dude, I can't,
1: yeah, I can't function when I have a hangover. Yeah. yeah, I, I, the, yeah that, this weekend was, uh, it showed me how old I am now. 31 bro. Can't do it like we were, we were 27 and shit.
0: <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what, what, what have you been up to the past, the past week?
1: I mean, we did uh, a pod with Jazz. Maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. Fuck. That was a good podcast. Eh? Like I, I walked out of it just feeling good. I think cause we do our podcast on zoom and stuff like that. I think the in-person conversations are something that it's a different caliber of conversation. I think like it's more natural. It's You you can go into like a bunch of random tangents and like come back out completely like unscathed. And it it feels more like a natural conversation than on Zoom where I'm looking to see is Austin going to talk now or is he not, right? Right. We'll take some things away from that conversation because I think we could probably start to do at least like a couple episodes in person and kind of get that kind of conversation for the right caliber of like guests and stuff like that. Um, right. but, but we'll kind of see, we'll try to implement that in the next week or two. Right. Where because random studio. For those
0: who don't know, basically like jazz, he's either co-founder or maybe solo owner. I believe it's a co-owner of rec Canada. One of the largest real estate brokerages either in the province or maybe in the entire country. Yeah, that's like over 60 agents under him. He had my own on for a live podcast. He live streamed it. it was pretty cool. We went in there, no expectations. And then he came out with like a booklet of news articles, like which one do you want to talk about? Yeah. And then we just like are shooting the shit. We're reading the article live. We're giving our thoughts on it. Questions were completely organic. Have you guys seen like Theo Vaughn's podcast where they're just like shooting or the Patrick shit? And
1: they like, Joe Rogan, they all do it kind of like the same right. way, right?
0: Jamie, pull it up. We need to get <laughs> ourselves to Jamie. My, you pulled that shit up.
1: <laughs> uh, anything else on the real estate end though? Um, let's see, unemployment. Unemployment dropped, right? It fell 0.1% in January. Yeah, I will call it, like, I, I don't know if we're going to have these cuts uh, in, the, in the first half of the year, like everyone anticipated. The data I mean, is they, just they're is getting back. pushed back again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, bond, the, the data is not supporting back. it. Yeah, the, the data is not supporting it and I can't wait until more people realize it because we need this freaking housing market to chill the fuck out.
0: The other thing is, is that, I mean, like housing is the biggest sort of, we're talking about uh, yeah. also U.S. inflation, right? It, it uh, missed expectations. Uh, which is not a good thing. It was higher
1: than expected, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's higher than, it was expected to, to to grow, but it even beat, not beat, it, it was worse off than analyst expectations uh, yep. by 10 basis points. Uh, housing seems to be the issue in Canada, uh, driving inflation. Um, And someone, it was funny, someone asked Tiff Macklem, uh, why aren't you cutting down rates to help with like housing supply, which is somewhat true. But Tiff was like, look, we cut down rates. It doesn't help with the housing market. We increase rates. It doesn't help with the housing market. Like we can't influence housing, which is somewhat true.
1: There's a shit situation. He basically said it's not his problem, which is true, right? right. Like, housing yeah. is not the economy. It's one part of the economy, right? But it's not a standalone. Like that's not the entire economy. We just feel it the most in the housing, right? But the economy as a whole is actually doing decent, you know, like unemployment going down is pretty big. That too in January, like January's, uh, I guess. Okay. Wait, wait, let's preface by saying a lot of the jobs
0: were part-time, right? Okay, really? I didn't even get a, lot, a chance to get into yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of it is part-time jobs. And I, I'm trying to remember, it's either less full-time or
1: not, or very little increase in full-time. But keep in mind, like population growth was also like positive, right? Like we had something like a 0.4% population growth. So I even just keep it up, like not really... Like, you would expect unemployment to be going up, right? Right. And so even just kind of staying where it is, that's still positive news, right? The the point is, like, the data is just not supporting, like, an actual negative outlook, which is what you need to be able to justify rate cut, right?
0: Yes and no. I mean, yeah, it depends. I mean, there's so many indicators, right? Like, GDP per capita is kind of gross. uh, It's not going to get any better. Is it still not negative. Oh, no, per capita is negative. Oh, per capita, per capita. Per capita is negative, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But anyways, like, uh, we're not economists here. Right? <laughs> but no, I think the point we're trying to get across is people were celebrating way too soon. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, and it seems like every piece of news just, and we talk about this
1: in Jazz's podcast. Actually, maybe yeah. we should save it for, for people to listen to that one. Basically, the news is a lagged indicator, right? So by the time the news starts talking about, oh, c- cuts might not be happening, like, it, it should be well known based on the actual data on the ground, like, a month ago, right? Um, but yeah, definitely check out Jazz's episode. Uh, what else is going on? Um, I- I'm starting to get lazy to make offers now because of, of the shit that we've been seeing in the market. And I'm like, you know what? what I'll make a low offer and then I'm, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not trying right. to be a one of 20 on offer date. Right. right. So that's been my stance recently, but um, we'll see. Uh, I- I'm also not crazy to like rush into like making an offer. Like, I-, I think there'll be other buying opportunities in the next couple of years. Right. I don't think we're going into this period of uh, massive growth. Right. It's more so a period of, Buy when there's less competition, stay out of yeah. the market. When there's crazy competition, right?
0: I think we have a good sense. So there's going to be a point in time, probably, maybe, possibly even this year, where things slow down drastically again yeah, if no. things don't go to you know as anticipated. Yeah, I shared an article. I don't know if you if you if you saw it. Oh, I just shared it this morning, so maybe not. Um, but there's a story about the tenant man who fucking uh, like there's a case of a tenant not paying a landlord. Okay. Went uh, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice like I went through the LTB onto the superior court. Okay. It was like 90K in unpaid rent. And like the LTB could only do 35K. It's fucked. It's crazy, man. The system is so broken. You're going to toss a verdict or? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, oh dude, this professional tenant, this is like biggest nightmare situation. Basically in a nutshell, the tenant stopped paying rent. They went to the LTB. Maximum was 35K. Yeah. And then they, like there was an eviction. The tenant motioned for, I guess, like uh, a pause on the eviction, right? And then postponement because yeah. they wanted to fight it. And then the tenant continued to not pay rent, so bought themselves more time. And then now the damages were way over 35K. And so the landlord was like, fuck it, I'm pulling this case out of the LTB. So the landlord withdrew it because the landlord's like, if I go to the LTB, I'm only going to get 35K. I'm taking this all the way as high as I can, right? Yeah. And then what the tenant said was the tenant's like, oh, he never withdrew it properly. So we're still supposed to go to the LTB, right? And then, so the tenant was trying to buy themselves more time, plus also limit the damages, you know, but the LTB was like, nah, nah, he did it properly so that he took it to the, um, the court, right. And then the tenant was arguing to the court that you have no jurisdiction to be doing anything with this landlord tenant board stuff, right? Like it's out of your control and said that also, this landlord didn't follow the right processes and notices, LTV, et cetera, et cetera. And the court was basically like, you are fucking out of your mind. So you're paying all 90,000 back. Plus it was another about
1: 20,000 in damages, but that's because the guy had to pay 16 legal fees, et cetera, et cetera. 16 illegal for Supreme was not bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy though. The tenants probably sound like clean bankruptcy, I bet. It was in Toronto though. It was in Toronto. It was like a $3 million house or $2 million house. So. All right. That's a good transition for today's episode. Today we've got Ryan Carson. He's one of the go-to lawyers in the real estate industry for a lot of us. They do residential, commercial real estate investing. But in this episode, we covered a lot of like the real estate legal issues. What do real estate lawyers actually do? What happens when someone fails to close both as a seller and as a buyer? We've definitely seen both sides of that legal remedies. What's actually like a practical solution? What's the power of sale process? I'm sure anyone that's ever been a lender or debating being a lender has kind of considered that, right? And then really what kind of factors either power sale versus foreclosure. So we really deep dive into the legality behind the real estate law section that honestly, a lot of us as investors, we don't really cover. So hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you do, make sure you guys drop a five-star review on Spotify, share this with a friend, jump onto YouTube and, and you know subscribe to Rise Network uh, YouTube page and drop a like on there because we're trying to start up the YouTube page a little bit.
0: Just a heads up before we get started, this podcast is all about providing you information, not financial or legal advice. So if you need the real deal for your situation, hit up a professional. We can't promise you our information is always up to date or accurate, and we're not responsible for any investment decisions you make based on it. Markets change, information change, you know the drill. Anyways, thank you for hanging out with us responsibly. Let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest and legal expert, Ryan Carson from Carson Law. How's it going, Ryan? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. You know, just kind of start off with a level site here. What is a real estate lawyer? What do you guys do? Give us kind of your
2: background. Um, just give us the, the rundown. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's a pretty broad question. I mean, I think just in a short statement, I mean. The real estate lawyer is sort of the closer, the professional that helps close the transaction, whether it's a sale, purchase, refinance, a private lend. Uh, we're usually the professional who's at the end of the the processing line, if you will, to help make sure we've confirmed and captured all like the terms up to that point between the various parties to make sure the process is completed on those terms, and then also just troubleshoot potentially any problems that may arise either up to that point or they may be a new issue that comes up. But we're sort of like a closer. If you're a sports person, we're kind of like the guy who goes in to to save the baseball game type of thing. So, But we're usually that professional to help finish off and coordinate and complete the transaction when you're talking about real estate matters. Awesome. Yeah, I I, I think the real estate, the law side, it doesn't get as much attention just because it might
1: not be like the sexy deal making or, or whatever kind of that people see publicly on like social media and stuff like that. But I think uh, myself and Austin have been, um, you know, on on the various sides of multiple transactions, lenders, borrowers, sellers, buyers, and we've kind of understood the the significance of it. So kind of just jumping into things, I, I do want to kind of understand one of the biggest things that we're seeing in the real estate. Side today is a failure to close on the buyer side, right? What are you guys seeing within your practice? I guess before we jump into that side, what do you guys see as the biggest issue in today's world? Is it like private lenders for closing or is it like defaults? Or-
2: yeah, I mean, I guess we kind of have, you kind of see like two different categories of of buyers in that case. Like you've got your real estate investor buyer, which is obviously a bit different than just personal use buying, right? Fortunately, I would say most of the deals in both categories, uh, at least like with our practice, with our clients and so forth, we've been pretty fortunate. I don't think we've seen a significant high content of deals not closing, but historically speaking, prior to the change in interest rates going up and I guess the economy being a bit in flux right now, I mean, really, we probably saw you know, less than one percent, if any deals not closing, right? Uh certainly not because of, you know, financial issues or qualifications or that kind of thing on the buy side, right? So certainly there's been an increase. Fortunately for us, I would still say with our clients in our practice, it's still like a minority increase. Like I don't even know if it would be 10% of the deals not closing. So we've been fortunate that way, whether it it's our clients are you know, doing more of their homework and they're making sure they they know they have the financing to go through and or they've got a plan B in case plan A doesn't work for that. Fortunately, both on the personal buying transactions and on the real estate investor side, we haven't seen a lot of people not close. When they don't close, it's typically because of money. They're short, right? There's typically some shortage or they don't qualify. Something's come up to disqualify them from what they had planned for. And so then it's just a question of will the parties negotiate and provide an extension, right, to allow for a plan B if it's not in place to be, you know, figured out, looked into, negotiated. Sometimes a plan B can be like VTB, vendor takeback back financing. Sometimes that's playing a bigger role than it's been in the past. But yeah, fortunately, we haven't seen too many deals not go through. But we we have certainly seen more than we've seen historically, which is still to say there's been some. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, understood. That's a good point. That sort of lines up with the narrative of what we're hearing in the public, such that um, the non-closures of of deals is a lot of it is due to financing appraisals, running short on money. So again, it lines up with that. Sort of curious to hear your thoughts on, so you mentioned, I mean, one of the things that you guys do is you try to work on creative solutions, whether that be an extension, figuring out where to get the money from, the vendor take back. When situations like that aren't necessarily able to pan out, what happens during a failure to close? Does it lead to immediate litigation? Can you negotiate a mutual release? Like what happens with the deposit? Can you sort of walk us through that process?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly the process is anything but fast, right? Like, I mean, the only part that would be fast is if you could negotiate a mutual release. It would all depend on who you were representing, though, of course, right? If you were representing the party that, you know, wasn't the breaching party, then likely you're not going to, well, we would not recommend a release, you know, because we don't know what the damages are yet, right? Well, they haven't been crystallized, right? But You know, once you know what damages are, costs and losses and those sorts of things for the party that didn't breach the terms of the deal, then of course you could potentially deal with a mutual release and usually it might be like they're forfeiting all or part of the deposit and then the party sign a release and nobody can sue each other because it's done, it's released, right? The deposit's been forfeited and or other amounts have been paid and it's done, it's over with uh the release is certainly the most expeditious and most controlled process between the parties and potentially their lawyers or representatives um you know if you can't get a release because either it's not a good idea to from a legal standpoint or you just can't get the parties to agree on the terms of a release then there's always the uh, the possibility that the non-breaching party could bring a lawsuit and, and sue the breaching party, you know, for their losses, costs and damages, depending on obviously the court office in the region in which you're in, in like, the, let's just say it's in the province of Ontario, that time frame, that timeline could vary, right? Like your ability to file and, you know, start the court process and get an actual trial date, if necessary, in Toronto is going to be greatly different than it might be, say, in Fulton. No, right now, I think historically is is probably seeing the longest process. Um, that's not surprising, probably to a lot of listeners and so forth, on the, on the basis that it is like the largest region, like from population size and so forth. That being said, though, it's not just the big cities that can be slower. It's sometimes the the smaller rural areas, which I know are sometimes very popular areas for investors to try to buy in and, and to negotiate deals because the price point and opportunity and so forth. And so it, it is important to know that those can be slow too, or even sometimes slower, because even though you don't have higher volume, the volume is still high enough with such a low number of staff in those yeah. offices that it takes as longer longer than Toronto. Can I ask you this, and with, with regards to when these, like, um, you, you obviously said it way more legally than me,
1: but I'm just going to say, like, when people fail to close, right, and we're trying to determine damages in the case of a seller, seller wants to sell, buyers defaulted, A, how do you go about determining damages, and then B, at what point is the damages, like, monetarily worth going through, like, the litigation process of trying to recoup?
0: Yeah, and yeah. I think vice versa as well. I'm also interested in the opposite of my user. Yeah, but- I was going
2: to ask that second. Okay. Dude, <laughs> yeah, that my so- thing. Be efficient. So, you know, with like, let's say the buyer breached, you know, like, <laughs> so the buyer doesn't close on the deal, which is probably the most likely scenario. Normally, it's not the seller that can't go through with it, although that can happen. Um, But let's say the buyer can't do it. Let's say their their financing fell apart. They couldn't get enough money. And so they had to just walk away from the deal. And they're saying, hey, keep my deposit. I'll sign a release forfeiting the deposit. Um, you know, let's just be done with this. Uh, But then we're acting for the seller. We would say, okay, well, look, we're not saying you won't do that, but we need to figure out what are your losses, costs and damages here, right? The only way to do that, like, fully is you need to relist the property and try to resell it and let's see what you get. And so let's say they were supposed to buy it for a million and you relisted it and you diligently made all efforts to sell at fair market value in that current market and it sold for 800. So you have a loss of sale price of 200K there. So right away, that's part of what you're suing for. You lost 200K, right? Right. Mm-hmm. you had double, let's say, your cost with your realtor. Let's say you had double the cost with your lawyer because now it's like happened twice or whatever, right? And now you have your lawyer litigating, so you have those costs, right? So you'd put it all in a blender and you'd basically put that all into a claim and those would be your costs, damages and so forth that you would be suing the buyer for not following through with the terms of the agreement of purchase and sale. And in that case, like if the deposit, was a large deposit, like let's say it actually was 300k deposit, right? Let's say it was a really healthy deposit. The realtor really did a great job negotiating getting a higher deposit. Um, Then advising to take the release makes sense because we know you pretty much covered all your costs, if not fully covered all your loss and costs. You just do the release, you take the deposit, everybody's done. But let's say it was like a really low deposit. And it was only like 50K, right? One 50K. Well, you still have a pretty healthy amount that you're out. And so there are definitely losses and costs there that you could seek the court to provide damage, like a damage reward on, right? But as we alluded to like a little earlier in this conversation, that process is not going to be quick, regardless of what court you go through, Right. And some regions are going to be slower than others, right? Like, you don't, you just don't put the claim in. They put a defense in and then all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting at trial. You've got to go through other steps. You got to go through examinations. You've got to go through discoveries. Uh, all these things are a process that take time and obviously cost you money with your litigation lawyer, right? Is there so, a threshold at which you find that it's like worthwhile to go through the litigation? Um, I think it, it's hard to say that because it's very subjective, right? Like as, as lawyers, I, I think if you're doing a good job with advising clients about the process of litigation, it's important that they understand it's long. It can be very stressful and it can be costly and everybody's always very fired up and typically, you know, excited or, or at least motivated to sue. Because they they see the carrot there of like, oh, there's like 300000 available here for me to go get, and they owe it to me. Like they wronged me. So there's a lot of emotion and principle at the beginning. And so I think our job as lawyers is to try to be emotionally disconnected from it and say, hey, I get it. You're upset, Austin. I appreciate that. And you're not wrong that they owed you a duty to fulfill the terms of the contract. It didn't happen, though. And now the problem is, yes, they owe you this money, but you know, you're going to spend X dollars chasing it. You're going to spend X hours of your life chasing it. Um, it's going to take X months or maybe even years to chase this. Um, if you want to do that, like knowing that and thinking about that and reflecting on that, if you want to go through the process, we will help you go through the process but you really do need to take a reflection and and say to yourself, yes, I'm buckling in and I'm doing this. Or, you know, you take a release and you take what's available and you have to reflect and accept that possible settlement, if you will. Right. So there's really no way of answering your specific question of like, is there a threshold? Because everybody's subjective, right? Like some people would say, no. Unless I want the full, like I want to write down to the full penny that they owe me, and I that's fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna buckle in and I'm gonna go for it, and I've got the money to do it. So and I've got the time, and I I'm fine. I'm comfortable. I'm gonna do it. And then other people are you know much different than that, and they're gonna say, geez, I know I'm taking a huge haircut here. They're gonna give me the fifty k to pause I'm leaving like two fifty plus on the table, but I just I don't have the stomach or the financials or just, or just the time, like they might be like, I'm comfortable and I have the money and I've got the stomach for it. I can focus that 50K, go to the next deal and just make more money doing that than I would focusing on a lawsuit. So it's very subjective, right? It's very subjective to the client, how they feel, what their personality is like, making sure. Um, the lawyer that's talking to them has really made them fully aware of what this journey is going to be like. And then just, they just have to make a decision. I would normally say if it was me, um, personally, like not even like you using my lawyer hat here, like if I was the party that w- had to make a decision, like if I was the client, I, I would try to normally settle myself only because I'd look at it as I could take this money, yeah, it sucks that I, you know, I could have got a million, but I got 800. I still made money on the deal. Like that's another thing that helps. Like if you still made money, you just didn't make as much money, then it's like, I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna get 50,000 in the settlement and I'm gonna go do something more productive with my time and that money. And I'm not gonna have this stress and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, I just, I feel like practically speaking for me, that's better, right? But that's, that's me, right? If I lost money, like if that drop from a million to eight actually saw me lose on the deal, then that might change my view of it a little bit more to be like, no, I've already lost money here. Like a million was going to get me just a little bit of money or a break, even, right? You know, now they pooched me by 200 K. I, I'm going after them for that because. You know, they should have done, they should have, they should have gone and got their financing. They should have got a plan B in place and they didn't. So, and so does the seller normally recoup the legal? Like, well, if you are the party bringing the court action, your lawyer will, uh, will request costs. Like they'll make a request, not only for the reimbursement of losses and all those sorts of things, but they'll make a request uh, in the courts for, their costs for legals to be covered the judge has to make a decision based on all the evidence pleaded whether they're going to get substantial or only partial now want to sort of you won't ever really get a hundred percent that's not really possible but you could be reimbursed partially or substantially are the terms now i
0: sort of want to shift towards the buyer side i ask this because this is more common i guess in wholesale deals more so than regular sort of transactions you might have situations where uh, a seller agrees to get into a contract and maybe a week before they go MIA, right? Maybe they are changed their mind, so on and so forth, and they just ignore their phone calls. And you've already assigned the deal. Let's say there's like a $20,000 fee.
2: What happens in situations like that? So you've got, you're doing an assignment wholesale deal. You're the assignor. And uh, or, or let's just say, like, forget
0: about the wholesale deal. Let's say if the seller just disappears, right? Because they're just like, oh, like the market is ripping. And so I don't want to sell it anymore. So I'm just going to stop responding to everyone.
2: Much harder to prove damage is there. It really is harder. Um, Like if the seller breaches the deal, like whether it's they go MIA, like in the situation you described, uh, either just in a straight sale or, or a wholesale, you know, whether there's some reason they can't like. Maybe there's a title search issue, right, or something like that, um, and they can't, you know, fix it or remedy it, and the buyer still wants to proceed. Yeah, that that's a much harder situation, and I don't do our office's litigation. Uh, one of the other lawyers in the office does. I know we've looked into this over the last couple of years because there have been, like, a few occasions where we've seen this in the last couple of years. My original thought always was in talking with my litigation lawyer in the office was, well, could we do what is called specific, like an order of the court for what is called specific performance of the contract, where you're basically getting a judge to say, we were ready to close. We tendered on them showing that we could close and they just didn't for whatever reason, legitimately or not, they just didn't close as sellers. So we want you to give us an order of the court that makes them go through with the deal. The problem with that, and I I'd have to get this verified a bit more by my, my litigation lawyer. But the problem with that is the courts have put very narrow like parameters on like how you can actually get an order of specific performance. You have to basically show like that there's no, almost no other alternative property that you could just go buy your like buy elsewhere mm-hmm. right like you'd have to show this as a completely unique acquisition and so like thus them not giving the order of specific performance would prejudice you in in what's occurred with this this botch deal this defaulted deal it's much harder to kind of create remedy if you will for like a buyer who wants to go through with a deal that a seller's kind of defaulted on and even to show
1: damages on the buyer's part because like that happened to us on a, on a deal before and you know the, the market was down kind of like it is now right and then you end up buying something and then it's set to close let's just say in like four months right and if the market oh, if we, yeah that happened with our wins yeah. or we bought it right in the middle of covid right and then um uh, when the market started to rip, the seller was like, hey, look, like, I, I wasn't able to buy another house and so, like, I'm just not going to like sell this house. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty low purchase price for us. But the advice that we'd gotten at that time was you'd have to go out and like, you get an appraisal done at that time to kind of show this is the damages that were done, right? And obviously you have to be ready to close, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or you, and then you go get an appraisal done and you can kind of try and sue for the damages or you'd have to go and buy like a an identical house to show the market shifts. But like, no two houses are really the same, right? Like Yeah,
2: it's very, it's it's hard as a buyer to, I think, go after a defaulting seller. So, I mean, practically speaking, like, your best course of action there. Yeah, I mean, just trying to think if there's a way to, like, deal with it practically just with your negotiated terms. I mean, you can't really put a penalty clause in or something like that if they breach, right? Um yeah. I mean, you can sometimes do what what is called like registering like certificates of pending litigation against the property. So you it kind of like temporarily like binds up the property in case you wanted to bring a lawsuit um just for a breach of like terms. Yeah. Like because yeah. what we talked about before was, you know, seeking a specific order of like performance. Right. Which the courts that's much harder, as as you found in your your example as well to actually do, because you need to show that like unique ability, so to speak. Right. But you could just say there's been a breach of the terms. And, you know, if you were an investor, like you could say that we had like, we had trades set up now, now, like we sought to pay them certain like minimum fees because that was the deal with the trades. We already ordered a whole bunch of material. Like, so there could be other things, right. As real estate investors that you actually do have like quantifiable damages and costs on like trades supplies for renovations. If it was like a reno development type of thing could even be like issues with like potentially set up tenancies, right? Like maybe like you've like prearranged in some capacity tenancies and so forth for the property. Right. And, and now you've, you have not only problems with the tenants because they thought they had a place to live. Like so, you're dealing with tenant issues, but like you could quantify possibly and be able to show, you know, multi-residential property with like ten units, each cash flowing us like a thousand bucks a month or something, or five hundred bucks a month, you know, over the course of the year. That that's sizable, like as far as like cash flow revenue you've lost. Like so, there there could be things you could quantify as a buyer possibly and trying to bring a lawsuit for breach of terms of the agreement of purchase and sale, but. I think it's easier for the seller to bring a lawsuit and or negotiate like release terms and stuff when there's a breach. And thus, that's why there's probably, that's where that breach normally happens is the buyer couldn't close, right? Much harder for a buying party to probably bring something that's worth actually spending the time and the energy and the money negotiating settlement or actually litigating. Yeah,
0: no, that's a, that's a, thank you for the detailed answer there. And look, one thing that actually another person has done before, I think it was another wholesaler is, is that they got the property at a good price. Seller didn't want to close for whatever reason. So -hmm. they just had an option there that first prevented them from selling the property, as you mentioned, but also that they would have the right to purchase the property at the same price at a future date. Right. But I guess it's just like the negotiation and creativity, but usually if a seller's not going to close, then they probably have something
2: else well and that's an interesting point that you say like maybe just to add to that like that could if you found that the reason the seller was kind of going MIA or saying they're not going to close it's because you know they know they could put it back out on the like they could put it on the market and get an extra 100k or something like that and because that's because you got such a sweet deal or because the market changed so much you could always potentially put it in there like you said uh Austin that you get like a first shot at it. Right. Or you get to renegotiate the purchase price back up to a hundred or whatever, whatever. Right. So maybe it like keeps the deal going. It just, everybody just agrees like, yep, we still need to make this a good deal for all parties. I'm still happy paying more money.
0: We want to get into private lending a little bit, but before we pivot into that, I want to just sort of round off this like contract sort of dispute discussion. Let's talk about things that we can do to prevent matters like this happening on an investor or a home buyer side. These are sort of common disputes that come up in our conditions or when we drop the contracts. What are some things like what are I guess what are some common liabilities or issues that arise for for either investors or buyers? And what are some things we can include in our
2: contract to ensure that we're well protected? Yeah, well, I think on the buying side, like, I mean, with the market shifting and kind of becoming more of a like a balanced market again, I mean, maybe some areas are, you know, seller markets or buyer markets, but I think overall it's fairly balanced. Again, like you're able to like actually put terms into the agreement. It's not just like you got to outbid everybody, you know, you got to go in firm offers, outbid everybody. Right. So you can put in conditions. So, I mean, you've got to look like, if you're a buyer, you've got to load up your agreement with, you know, financing condition for approval, you know, inspection conditions of approval, you know, various other due diligence conditions, depending on if it's like multi resin commercial for like zoning, work orders. You might need to do environmental. Again, depends on like what the property is and how you intend to develop or use it. But I think simply put, you need to put conditions in, right? You need to, you know, at the very least have it so that your your lawyer can review. Like if you're not going to put any condition in except one, like have it so that you can have legal review at least, right? And then hopefully like, you know, if you're working with us or another experienced real estate investor lawyer, at the end of the day, hopefully they'd at least say to you, Well, you don't have any other conditions in here. Like, do you have your financing in place? Do you have a plan A? What if that goes to crap? What's your plan B? And I think that would be the next thing. Like if you're a buyer, You need to have a plan A and you need to have a plan B. You might even need a plan C, right? And you need to make sure those are all in place or you're confident in them prior to you pulling the condition, right? Because once you pull all the conditions, if you didn't do that and make sure you were really confident with your financing options and then they all disappear on you or you only had one and it disappears on you, like you've really pickled yourself, right? So Now that the market again is a bit more balanced, I think it's really beneficial and there's a great opportunity for buyers again to have more of a negotiation with what they're doing, but really protect yourself. Do your due diligence, get your plan A's, B's, and C's in for for financing opportunities. Expect for the worst to happen. Don't expect for it to go well. Plan for it to go poorly, right? So if you have a plan in place so that if it does go poorly, like, it's not going to be a problem for you because you got a plan. You're ready to go, right? You're ready to go with the private lender that you didn't want to, but you have them, right? Uh, or you're ready to go that they've indicated, yeah, they will give you that BTB for your down payment that you're short now, right? I think these sorts of things are the things that will help protect the buying like investor going forward with the way the market is, right? It's like plan for the worst but then obviously hope that the best comes through. Right. I mean, specific clauses, I think it's just really loading up conditions and so forth, like financing inspections, but, but then actually do those things. Right. Like the number of times I talked to clients and they had the conditions in there, they fulfill them or waive them. And then they didn't do anything. Like, it's just kind of like, okay, well you got to look at yourself first here. You kind of blame yourself. You didn't do like an inspection or would have found that the basements, you know, like needs an entire new, like waterproofing and that's 20 K or whatever. Right. Or some foundational beams that are not to code. And now you got to spend money on that, that you didn't want to. Yeah.
1: And I think that's important. I think, I think also though, aside from the buyer side, a good segment of our population. Cause I want to, I want to kind of pivot here to the private lending side. A lot of investors have looked at private lending as an alternative way to produce like true cash flow, right? Because the only thing you're getting is like straight interest payments and no liabilities. Now, in the last two years, the, the the risk profile has changed drastically in private lending. But I'd love to hear, what do you guys see on the private lending side in terms of the type of loans, the issues that people are dealing with? Are foreclosures and power sales truly like significantly up? Like what are you guys seeing on that side?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they are up. I don't know the stats on them or anything, but certainly. I mean, the news, whether it's like in a formal report or, you know, it's informally being chatted about in, in like real estate circles and banking circles, certainly with the interest rate increase over the last 24 months, even like a banks, like the report unofficially is a lot of them are underwater, right? Like a lot of people are technically in default of their mortgage terms, right? Um, So I'm sure default notices possible powers of sale possible foreclosure proceedings are likely higher than if you compared them you know to pre interest rate increase right you know that all being said though like fortunately we we don't see too much in the way of that at the moment and normally whatever we do kind of start down that path fortunately usually there's like some negotiations that are in place and it's just there's been a leg on the, the, the takeout financing happening. And so fortunately it usually comes to be before you actually have to possess and sell properties and that kind of thing, which is good. Like no, I don't think anybody wants to be a lender or the banks don't want to be, they don't want to take properties, right? Like that's not, that's not their game. That's not their, their policy and so forth. Um, and I think most private lenders are like that too. They're not trying to take properties from people. Yeah.
1: You might already have the answer to this, you might not, but are you seeing most of like the issues or the defaults on like renewal where the lenders don't want to renew, or is this like you're missing payments and you're falling behind and therefore now like you're looking at a power sale? for
2: Yeah, I'll probably say more we seem like, and this is just us, we more so see us having to take notice or procedures when people are in default. So not, out as as much, not as much like they were good. They paid all their payments. They just got to the end of the term and mm. it's like, Hey, boom, thanks, but we don't want to renew. So how are you paying us out? Mm. It, we don't normally see it in the, like, usually if that crosses our desk, it's been like, because it's been months since renewal and there hasn't been enough progress for the lenders liking. And they're like, we need to put a, you know, a bee in the bonnet here. and and make this borrower realize they got to do something or, okay, we don't want to, but we'll take the property.
0: We're throwing the word power, sale, and foreclosure loosely. They're two different processes. That's um, right. Which yeah. which one is, can you explain briefly what each one is and which one's more common
2: in Ontario and, and why is it more common in Ontario? Yeah. I mean, so there are two processes. One is statute based under the Mortgages Act. That's the power of sale. And the other one is foreclosures, which is uh, more through like the civil procedure process. They're both available to a lender, a registered mortgage lender, to take action when there's been default. Right? They both take a long time. I won't kid you. They both take a while. Like no, no one's losing their place in 20 days. Right? That kind of thing. Uh, foreclosure is is I would say substantially longer than power of sale. And thus most banks, at least in Ontario, probably in the country of Canada, prefer power of sale for two reasons. One of the two processes, it's procedurally quicker, like a resolution can happen quicker. And two, power of sale under the Mortgages Act is not necessarily granting you home ownership. Like You don't take over ownership of the property. You take over the ability to possess it to then sell it, right? And that's what the banks want. Like, they're not interested in owning your house, or at least that's not been historically the Canadian bank's policy, you know, and process, right? Obviously, people, if you did a lot of stuff in the U.S., and you read a lot about historical stuff in the U.S., like, that's a bit different because their banking system's different. The banks took a different approach in the U.S., right? So this is really Ontario and potentially Canadian-based mostly, right? So power of sale, quicker of the two, and you're getting an order of the court to possess it, to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, foreclosure, you're actually getting an order from the court and you take over the ownership. So you actually own the house. The difference being when you become the owner of it, You not only get all the perks of being the owner, but you take over all the liabilities as well. So that's another reason why, like the bank's like, why would I take over the property just to be subject to my own mortgage, right? When would someone go for a foreclosure over a power sale? I I guess if you felt like there was a huge opportunity to, even after you had to take over the mortgages on the property, like for example, let's say I'm the lender, you're, you're the defaulted owner. I go foreclosure and I actually get the order to foreclose. So now I'm the owner of your property. Mm -hmm. And let's say Austin had the mortgage against the property, right? Or sorry, no, it'd have to be me. So I had the mortgage on the property, right? But Austin had a second mortgage, let's say. Mm -hmm. So our combined mortgage is now, I've got to satisfy and get and deal with them, right? And so the question is, in me taking over that property's ownership, Is there still substantial equity even after I pay Austin, right? There's a possibility to equity. People might look at the foreclosure Mm -hmm. as being more attractive to them because now, even after they got rid of all the debts and they paid off all the mortgages that are against the property, all the liens, whatever is against the property, tax arrears, the whole shebang, I'm still got a property that's more valuable to me. That I can I can make more money on, right? so whereas you take that same example, but you go power of sale because the numbers are super tight, like let's say Austin's mortgage is entirely underwater because like I'm even gonna take a haircut like i'm I'm barely gonna get my full amount of money on a sale at fair market value because the price has dropped in the market. I'm gonna do power of sale and not foreclosure because I only have to as the first mortgage lender satisfy that, like wherever I'm at and above. So if I'm first, that's why everybody wants to be first mortgage lender. You don't have to worry about everybody that falls below. Like Austin can sue the, can sue you still because you owe him money, but Austin can't use the property as security. He can't leverage the property anymore because he's a second mortgage on the property.
1: Right. Like personally, but like he's not going to be able to get the proceeds from the property. And then it's a question of is litigation actually worth it? Okay. Isn't
0: it isn't it also from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, like to your point, if it goes through a foreclosure and there's proceeds, you get to keep it. In power of sales, those additional proceeds go back to the owner of the property. So if you have a lot of equity, it's like I mean it's a nasty, nasty thing to do, right? Like don't Don't get me wrong. It's not like a really fair thing to do, but you keep all of their upside. Whereas in foreclosure, they still get their upside
2: after paying back all the lenders. Just to make sure we're clear, foreclosure, because the lender who has now become the owner, but foreclosure, they have to take care of all the liabilities. But if there's equity and upside, they keep it. Right. Property, homeowner will get nothing. The power of sale though, as as you said, if there is money left over after everything's paid, then the homeowner who lost their home would get whatever that that proceed is. It probably makes sense
1: in like a fix and flip or like a land assembly where like you, you just got to do a little bit more work and you can like drastically increase the value to like increase the likelihood that everyone gets paid out a little bit more, right? That's kind of interesting. So I guess from a um, from a buyer's perspective, okay. Uh, we're we're frequently looking at power of sale properties, especially more relevant in today's world. We all have data to or not all of us, but you know it's' very easily accessible data as to like what mortgages are registered on the property first, second, third, whatever beyond that right so as a rule like if we were to look up these properties and just see how much is the first mortgage and just offer a little bit more than that. Like, what is, like, is that, is that good? Like, is that kind of just all we have to do is just, hey, what's the first mortgage on this power of sale,
2: offer a little bit more than that if we want to, and then they would accept the deal? It has to be what, like, the market, like, what would be deemed fair market value, right? So, like, if the mortgage on the property, you know, is 500000 and that's approximately the outstanding balance and the And the reason it's in a power of sale is because they they missed their payments right they the people that were the borrowers lost their jobs right mm-hmm. and so but the property's worth a million, and that's like being conservative like let's say that's on the low end. you wouldn't just be able to turn around and say, "Hey, I'll give you five fifty because the problem for that lender trying to sell under the power of sale is anybody who falls like below them or any other Creditor of the borrower could file an action to say that was improvident. They would say that that wasn't as per fair market value because conservatively, fair market value is at least a mil. Right. So you can't, you can't just like undercut to get a good deal to cut out other creditors. I mean, it's on the other creditors to bring the action to say that this was improvident. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't per market parameters right and they would have to prove why it wasn't per market parameters and that kind of thing right but you're playing a bit of a a cat and mouse game there that you would probably lose if it was easily like provable or you could demonstrate it easily in court that like everything on this street's going for a million bucks we offer them 550 they took it because they just wanted to offload it to get like their mortgage paid and we're a creditor and we're pooched now because they only took 550. So it likely be like a second mortgagee or it could be a property tax municipality or somebody like that. That's going to bring an action to say you accepting this deal and selling at 550 when we know it can go for at least a million is improvident. You're basically just undercutting everybody. You can't do that. They seek an order of the court, <laughs> order of the court to set that aside
1: like there's a property on the market it has been listed for like a million bucks, let's say. Um, and I didn't mean real scenarios, I guess. It's not even, let's say, but the first position lender's sitting at about 850. That's like what we can see on like Purview. And then there's the second for like another 290 and a third for like another 150 after that, right? But they've been sitting for like four months now, right? Uh just kind of sitting there on the market. So it's like, what is really market
2: value? Like, is it really like? Yeah, I, I mean, that that's obviously more of a like, that's a much closer like draw than what I gave in my example. And obviously I did that on purpose, obviously yeah. to kind of illustrate the, you know, how draw like the drastic nature that it probably would need to be right. they, like the person that would claim that this is not like an above board transaction. Like you've undercut the, va- like the true value in the market just to try to pay off this mortgage because, you know, you, you've got a million dollar possible, Price and they've got a mortgage of eight fifty, but then they have these other mortgages and 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 liens against the property at like pretty substantial numbers that basically are exceeding a million bucks and because it's sat for well over like four months, you know like that would be a much harder i think task of somebody proving you know your offer and them accepting your offer of like eight fifty nine hundred is not legit like mm-hmm. You know, a difference of like a hundred K when you start factoring and plugging in what, what we just talked about there is going to be harder for somebody to overcome than the example I gave, which is like, yeah, there was only a 500 K mortgage to pay out. We offered 550, but it could easily go for probably a mil, right? But mm-hmm. meanwhile, you've got these other, you know, these other mortgages or, or registered lien holders against the property that like, they're left in the dust now, right? So because they, they fall in, like they fall below the priority of the, the mortgagee who's done power of sale. So yeah, it's, it's, there's not a clear, like it's all on the facts. It's all going to be like case by case fact driven. It's going to be very specific to the property type and the, like where it's located, what are the comps doing? you know, four months on the market right now, like is obviously, you know, longer, but I don't think it's like to say like, that's unusual in today's world because things have slowed down. Like most things are like 60, 90 day lists at least. Right. So hard to say, but like in your example, like you said, you know, the last comp being a million bucks, but it's, you know, it's getting close to sitting for half a year you know, more first mortgage at 850, who's the one who initiated the power of sale, you want to offer like 890, I mean, or 900 or whatever. And they accept, I mean, that would be, that would be challenging. I think for somebody to say that this is not legit.
0: We're we're digging down into this uh, pretty deep, but I have another question in regards to this. So let's say that obviously from my understanding with power sales, the redemption period is up until the day before closing or the day of closing. So at any time, the seller can pay, even if the property is sold, if the owner is able to make the entire mortgage payment, that transaction is canceled and the buyer's out of their own pocket for legal expenses, so on and so forth, right? Because they were able to pay everything back and all the obligations within that redemption period.
2: Yeah. You're like, that's a little bit more in my litigators, like per okay. mine, but yes, there, there is a, I don't know if that's exactly correct. Let's, let's presume it is for the most part. Um, I know that, that you basically as a borrower have a fairly significant time period in which to like bring it in, into good standing. Yeah. Even okay. though actions have been started and, or maybe even like it's gotten a like quite a long way down the process. Yes, there there is a redemption period that's fairly robust. The, co- the court wants the person to keep their place. My question is this, like, and it's not
0: going to be a common situation, but I'm asking this because it's a situation I've heard pretty recently, uh, and the wholesaling sort of we're working on something basically long story short. It's a power of sale. I uh, not power. Yeah. Power of sale. It has soul. Right. Um, The seller's lawyer has advised they still have time for the redemption. Right. So that transaction can still technically cancel, although it has been sold. That being said, what if the homeowner themselves, the seller wants to sell it cheaper to someone else? Right. But it's enough to cover all of the lenders. They would be obviously taking a little bit less equity, but they also wouldn't be paying realtor fees, so on and so forth. Right. Is that an issue per se? Because it's the seller's choice to sell it cheaper.
2: Yeah, I, I well, I, and so I think it would be because at that point, I mean, you'd you'd have to do some case law. I don't know. Sure, sure. It's, it's a it's a very interesting situation. But I would think a couple things that pop out to me there is I don't even necessarily know what authority the seller has to sell anymore because there's been an order and the the there's been a registration of the power of sale on the property, right? So I mean, that would be like interesting, even if they could do that, like enter into a a separate standalone sale agreement, I think that the problem would be you'd have a conflict with the fact that there's already this other valid and legitimate buyer out there, right? That like through the process. So it'd be, it'd be very interesting to see what the case law says there. Again, I don't know without there being probably a little bit more digging there, but that'd be interesting. I mean, the best advice I could give there is, you know, make sure the parties that are involved definitely have lawyers working with them and definitely that they, the lawyers have done their due diligence checking the recent case law on how that's been interpreted because that could be a, a really mucky situation.
1: Yeah, no, right. I think this is an awesome episode. We just want to be cognizant of your time. We've been uh going for a full hour here and for, for anyone that can't afford Ryan's early read really just uh, started podcasting. Set of good might, but, uh, you know, right for anyone that, uh, you know, is getting started in real estate investing uh, in today's world with kind of like one piece of advice they'd probably want to leave them with in today.
2: I mean, I I always like saying to people, like, make sure you have a good power team, you know, being like, make sure you've got good professionals working with you. So have like a, a, a realtor who's ex- like or somebody who's negotiating the deals for you that's experienced in what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, whether it's buying properties to like rezone and convert or buying to flip or buying land to develop or just buying like single family rentals to rent long term, like make sure you're working with somebody who has true experience in what you want to try to do. That's going to obviously help you a lot to make sure you're getting, you know, good agreements drafted, hopefully, and good, good terms negotiated, that sort of thing. You know, make sure you've got a really good mortgage broker as well. Similarly, like they, they have a history and an experience of doing what you're trying to do with your investments. Um, you know, have a, have a lawyer similarly that at least is a real estate lawyer, like a devoted majority of their practice is real estate. It's even better if they're an investor as well, because I think they can appreciate and understand a little bit more of what real estate investor clients are trying to do, um, than just a real estate lawyer, but definitely make sure they do real estate. Like not just as an aside, like we, I see a lot of clients come to me saying, Oh, I I don't feel like I got the greatest advice. Can I get a second opinion? And then, you know, you find out the lawyer, 90% of their practice is family law. You know, they do a little real estate on the side because it helps, you know, pay bills and stuff like that. Right. So really get a good, like good team in place with like the realtor, uh, your mortgage agent or broker, your lawyer, Insurance rep because something like insurance is getting harder and more complicated, right? So I think it used to be kind of the thing that everybody just kind of would be like, "Oh yeah, I'll get the insurance, I'll take care of it." But if you're a real estate investor, depending on the complexity of what you're trying to do, insurance could actually be something that ends up being a problem if you know, like, if you don't have it in place, right? So having a good insurance rep and then having a good coach, right? We all need help. We all need people to bounce ideas off. You know, like you guys are probably great mentors or coaches for people to have in the sense of you've been doing a lot of your own deals. You've learned a lot of your own lessons, right? It's trial by error a bit out there. And so experience uh, is invaluable. So having a good mentor or coach with those other professionals, I would say is the best thing that you could do if you're starting out and you really want to be successful in real estate.
1: Awesome, yeah, and I think Ryan. One thing that we didn't get a chance to talk too much about was your practice as a whole. But the second question for you is kind of where do you see your your practice going out in the next two to three years from now?
2: Um, yeah, like so. So my firm, the areas that I work on in my firm are uh, real estate, which is kind of a whole breadth of things. Um, but you know, anything real estate, I've pretty much probably done it. So like a lot of real estate practice in 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 my um, area. I do like corporate and and business work as well because it goes nicely with a lot of our our clientele, especially the real estate investors. So I help them do like corporate structuring, JV shareholder agreements, and corporation corporate structure for like planning and tax purposes. And then uh, and then I also like to tie into that like estate planning, so wills, powers of attorney, family trusts, because again, it just it's full circle for me, right? Like if I use the real estate client. Who's an investor as a as a just an avatar example? I can basically help them in all those areas. They they need all that advice, right? So that's what I do at the firm. I'm also like an executor and trustee. That's kind of outside of what we're talking about here. And then I have a lawyer that does litigation, uh, landlord tenant issues, predominantly more so for the landlord. We don't do a lot of tenant stuff per se for obvious reasons, but we do landlord tenant actions for the landlord. We have a lawyer who does state litigation as well. We have a little bit of family with another lawyer in the, in the firm. And uh, we have a lawyer who does uh, patents and trademarks. Um, So that's basically what we do as a firm as a whole. And what I do specifically in the firm Uh, where I see the practice heading, we're we're not going to obviously shy away from transactional work. That's just part of, that'll always be what a lawyer does. Like they work on, you know, Like matters, boom, 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 boom. Uh, It's a very transactional type of business, whether it's real estate or litigation or what have you. But I see us really shifting our focus on giving a lot more holistic advisory advice and work with our clients. So taking our existing clients and future clients, and really trying to stress upon them the the benefits of being properly uh, structured, set up, organized so that you're maximizing truly all of your goals and efficiencies. I think a real estate investor is a great example for this, because when you look at what happened prior to all the interest rate hikes, it was the the rush and the excitement of like, go, go, go. And it was so competitive. And so everybody was transactionally driven, right? Like buy, 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 sell, 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 whatever, right? Very much about the deal. Very little focus, I think, for even very experienced investors. Like I I'm doing some work with different high end investors that have, you know, lots of doors and like, they don't even have like all their corps are like, un, they're all disconnected. There's no parent company. There's no family trust. A lot of them don't even have a will or a corporate will. Like if they have a corporation, which they pro- which they do holding their real estate, you should have a corporate will at a minimum. Right? So, there's just a lot of planning that naturally has not been looked at because it was go, 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 because you had to, because that was the market. And now that there's been this step back or this cooling of it, um, I, I really think post-COVID, post-interest rate or during interest rate in, you know fluctuation here, it's really given us an organic moment to really shift to say, we really need to plan. You guys really need to plan. Because you could take the exact you could take Austin Ye and you could be like Austin Ye's kind of transactionally driven. He's got some planning, but not to the full scope it could be. And you can take that same Austin Ye with his same number of you know properties and everything like that and just put them over here and just do a like do a more thorough review and be like, okay, we could do this, 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 and this Austin for you, and guess what? You'll make more money. You'll save more money if something happens to you, right? Your estate will have more of a legacy and so forth, right? That's what we want to try to do for the clients. And I think mm-hmm. that's where we're headed for 2024 and beyond because I think everybody's seen the excitement of the high paced you know market. There's been a lot of people that have seen, unfortunately, a lot of fallout too. I don't know if some listeners have experienced it, but there's a lot of people that had really strong reputations, really big policies and and, uh, portfolios that have seen some hard times, right? Right. I think it's exactly what you said. I think a lot of us, we are focused
1: on the growth of our portfolios and, and, you know, not really the operational side or the cost improvement, which even like corporate wealth, and will say that's one like part of that exact issue that we just talked about, right? But Ryan, you know, totally appreciative of your time. Glad that we had you on the episode. For anyone that wants to get in touch with you, what's the uh, best approach for them to get in touch with you?
2: Uh, They can check our website out for all our details, which is www.carsonlaw.ca, or they can just email me, which is ryan at Carsonlaw.ca, and I'll get back to them uh, that day for sure. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. It's a real pleasure. Take care.